Well, we're in the midst of walking through the entire Bible together um, this year, trying to get a sense for what God is doing in history and in our day, so we get a sense for how we line up with that, how we join Him in His great redemptive work in our world. And the more we see His hand throughout history, especially the history recorded for us in Scripture, the better sense we have for how it is we walk with Him in that. And we've seen God speak the world into existence back in the book of Genesis, only to have it marred horribly by sin. And the rest of the story is this long redemptive road back as God works amongst His people and in His world. He chose a people to be his own, called Israel, only to have them reject him as their king. And what a human king, like all the other nations, that led to the stories of of Saul, the unfaithful king, and David, the good king, and Solomon, David's son. But after Solomon, this nation of God's people was torn in two and I'd like to give you some kind of sense for how this all ties together just time-wise this morning. You can date the Exodus, at least many scholars do, back about 1400, 1500 B.C. The Old Testament ends sometime around 400. So the Old Testament from Exodus to Malachi spans about a thousand years. You start dating things back behind Exodus, it gets a little complicated. But from Exodus to Malachi, it's about a thousand years. And the kingdom divides after these first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, about the year 930. This nation is ripped into two parts, um, Israel uh, in the north and Judah in the south. Now last week, uh, Chip took us through those books of Samuel, especially Kings and Chronicles, that chronicle the succession of kings, mostly unfaithful kings, ungodly men, and their leadership led the nation ultimately into captivity. About year 722, the northern kingdom, Israel, falls into captivity by Babylon. They're carried off as prisoners. A couple hundred years later, 150 years later or so, the southern kingdom of Judah falls into captivity as well. Largely as judgment for these ungodly leaders and the unfaithfulness of God's people. Now, today, somewhere between 586 and 432 is where these next three historical books unfold. Um, The books of Ezra... Nehemiah and Esther. They fit right in here. And I'll try to show you with a little more specificity where they fit. But I want you to see that this is all one great story unfolding. And today, in terms of history, we're going to walk right up to the end of the Old Testament, historically. There's a lot of other literature we're going to look at, Psalms and the messages of the prophets. They all fit in here somewhere. We'll talk about that. But today we're going to walk right up to the end of the Old Testament as God's people are waiting for the coming of the Messiah, preceding some 400 years of silence where there's no recorded revelation from God's people. Um, These books we're going to look at today, just for hooks for you to think about what they're about, 
Ezra focuses content-wise on rebuilding the temple. Um, They get a chance, and I'll show you when, to leave this captivity that they fell into in the year 586. They get a chance to go back into the land and rebuild the temple. Ezra tells us that story. The book of Nehemiah happens the same time, the same time for it's unfolding right after the book of Ezra. They go back to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. This is part of God keeping his promise, restoring his people to the land. And then the book of Esther really kind of falls right in the middle of those two books. They're all one historical package. And she's about, her story's about the providence of God in captivity. The people who did not return to the land. God has spoken a word to them um, through her story as well. But through these three books, we're reminded that God is faithful to his promises. You're going to see God do amazing things in these three books. And he has not forsaken his radically wayward people, which is good news for the likes of us today. So, if you want to open up your Bible to the book of Ezra, if you can find it, it's there in the sticky pages uh, in the Old Testament. Use your index if need be, or those little tab things on the side if you've got the deluxe model. Find the book of Ezra, that's where we'll start. Okay, let's pray. Lord, show us who you are um, so we can follow you. Show us your plan so we can line our lives up with it. I know there's, there's a room full of people making choices today about how they're going to live. Lord, show us your pattern, your path um, through these wonderful um, accounts of your working amidst your people. So we ask this for Christ's name's sake and in his name. Amen. Book of Ezra starts this way. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Babylon had taken everybody captive, and Babylon fell then to, to the nation of Persia. There's a lot of turmoil in the world when these books are being written. Um, Israel's being taken captive by Babylon. Babylon's falling to Persia. It's just in an upheaval, it seems like. But in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, and that's the name of God, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. This is a pagan king, folks. If you're worried about our elections, relax, okay? This is what God does. We'll see that. If you don't get anything else today, you will see God shape kings like, he, like nothing else. It's amazing what he does. And so this is coming out of the mouth of a pagan king, um, likely Zoroastrian king, not Jewish, not of the faith. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, A decree made to God's people. Any one of you people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah, build the temple of the Lord, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So 
They get to go back. They've been in captivity. Now they get to go back into the land. This is happening about 538 B.C. There's a lot of date markers in this, so the historians have really tagged them pretty close for us. So they've been in captivity about 50 years. And God stirs in the heart of this pagan king, Cyrus, to make a decree. Now it's interesting what Cyrus thinks he's doing. This is kind of his plan. A year into his reign over these countries after he took Babylon, he, he hit on this idea that he would let people go back to their lands and worship their gods with the idea that their gods would cry out to his greater gods to do him good. He says, uh, Cyrus says, May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities daily ask Bel and Nebo, my gods, for a long life for me. So he thinks he's sending the Jews back so they can intercede to Yahweh, that Yahweh will intercede to his gods. Um, Oh, little does he know how this stuff works. Um, But God is using him to accomplish his plan and purposes. Um, Now, it turns out, over in chapter 2 of Ezra, a group of people say, I'm in, I'm going back going back to the land, even though the land has been devastated and Jerusalem's a wreck uh, because of the captivity, about 50,000 people or so go back. Now the trick is here, um, you remember there were about 600,000 fighting men who left in the Exodus. Probably a couple million people marched out of Egypt, delivered by God. Why are there only about 50,000 going back? Maybe one in ten at best are going back to the place where God has promised that he would make them a great nation. He would bless them wildly. And they would bless all nations from this place and in his hand. Why aren't they going back? And I just wonder, you know, why won't a people leave captivity? This sounds real familiar to a spirit that's dogged God's people all along. Remember back in Exodus, they're out in the desert and food's a little short, and water's a little tight, and they say, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It's that same spirit of doubting the promised provision of God. And so even though they're captive in Persia, They'd rather stay there than go back to the land of God's promise. Simply put, unbelief kept them in captivity. And that has stunning application to us today. I'll just let you think about that. Unbelief kept them in captivity. Not all of them, but you know that many of them were there for that reason. If you keep reading through the book of Ezra, and I want to encourage you to read, I'll send out some highlights for you tomorrow to read this week out of these three books. Um, Chapter 3, they actually go back to the city, these 50,000 faithful remnant go back. They rebuild the altar so they can begin to worship God again according to his patterns. They haven't done that for 50 years at least while they've been in captivity. Um, They lay the temple foundation and then... Opposition sets in in chapter 4. The peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah, God's people, 
and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors, not biblical counselors, the other kind of counselors. Okay? They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So there was constant opposition to God's people doing God's will the whole line. The way we think it should work is we obey God and things are good. They obey God and it was hard. These people were oppressing them at every turn. But God is still at work on behalf of his people. Over in chapter 6, the new king of Persia, his name is Darius at this point in time, he issues an order as a result of the opposition that actually stopped the work. And then it had restarted. And there's some question about whether or not they should do this thing. So the king issues an order. They search in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll is found in the citadel of Ekbatana in the province of Media. And this was written on it. Memorandum. This is kind of note to self from King Cyrus. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices. And so what happens here is that um, Darius does a document search in his library to solve a debate about whether this temple should be built. He finds Cyrus' decree, the previous king, and it turns out he's going to let him rebuild the temple as a result of that. God uses a library search to let his people do his will. God is so sovereign and providential in these books. Um, And I mean, he doesn't just get a paper endorsement from Darius. This is what Darius goes on to say. He says, furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict that God's people should rebuild their temple and worship him there, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up. And impaled on it. Now this is a pagan king. Going to bat for God's people. For this crime his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God who caused his name to dwell there in Jerusalem. Overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree. Or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I Darius have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. So you see what God's doing for his people? He's just taking the hearts of kings and just shepherding them wherever he wants to go. Kings do his bidding. Pagan kings accomplish his purposes. Proverbs puts it this way. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of Yahweh. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. And that's one of the great stories of these three books. Vote in November, but don't worry about November. Okay? God is shaping kings to accomplish his purposes. And so at the end of chapter 6 in Ezra, after 22 long years of building, with all these starts and stops from opposition, they finally get the temple built. And in chapter 7, the focus shifts in the book of Ezra. The first part's about how do we build this temple. The second part's how do we build this people. Because the people are a wreck from living in pagan captivity for so long. Um, and a guy named Ezra, whom the book is named for, in chapter 7, 
shows up. And this is how they introduce Ezra to us. Um, This Ezra, he came up from Babylon, where they'd been in captivity. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Why? Why was God's hand on Ezra? For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is his reputation. He's a man who knows what God's word says. He does what God's word says and he teaches others along this same pattern. Even the pagan king identifies him this way. He says, um, this is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes, the next in a chain of kings in Persia, had given to Ezra the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of God of heaven. Greetings. Even the king, the pagan king, knows this is who Ezra is. He's a man who knows the word. He's a man who lives it out. He's a teacher of it uh, to others. That's Ezra's reputation. I wonder if you're honest this morning. Could you say, that's my reputation? Um, You know, we live in a land where 65% of Bible-believing Christians have never read the entire New Testament. Forget all the old hard stuff like Leviticus and Ezekiel that we're plowing through. 65% of people like us have never read the entire New Testament. How about you? I mean, this whole exercise we're doing together as a church is intended to spur you on to become like Ezra. You read the Bible. You do the Bible. Would your family, people living in the house with you, would they say, yep, reads the Bible, I know he does, I see him, I catch him doing it. Does what the Bible says, I catch, I catch her doing it around the house. Would your kids say that of you? Would your parents say that of you? This is Ezra's, one of Ezra's great challenges to us. Would your boss say that of you? Ezra's did. And so, because this is so strong in Ezra and what's going on in God's people here, this return to the word, I just, I just want to let you know, I don't understand why when you have the opportunity to study the Bible, you don't do it. I don't understand why the classes we offer are not better attended. Maybe you've got something better going on, but I don't know. It's a puzzle to me. And it worries me if it's indicative of our love for this amazing book that God has written for us. So I hope that maybe you'll re-examine schedule commitments and rethink what it means to seek after God through His Word and to seize some of the great privileged opportunities that are offered to you here at Northway. Um. Well, anyway, Ezra, after he convicts us all to death, moves on to build uh, the people and to reform them. He 
He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who's extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So he takes from Babylon a second group of people. This is a second return to the land. These people intent on reforming God's people. And again, just time-wise, the first group went back to build in 538. It's quite a few years later, about 80 years later, that Ezra himself leads this second return back to the land um, with his heart bent on reforming God's people. And that's the back end of the book of Ezra. It's about the work he does in God's people's lives. And it turns out there's a big problem Big problem that he uncovers when he gets back into the city of Jerusalem. These people have been unshepherded for all these years. And in chapter 9, it says, They've taken some of the daughters, the pagan daughters of the pagan people in the, in the land who'd been um, living there. They took The Israelites took pagans as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. This was a huge problem. It was totally contrary to what God had asked his people to do. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, he'd said, when you go into the land, don't intermarry with the people there. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For, and here's the reason, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So this is what's lying behind this whole situation. Um, And Ezra is devastated. He tears his tunic and cloak. He's pulling hair from his head. He's so distraught over this because he knows where it takes God's people to idolatry and then to the judgment of God. And he's desperately um, seeking God. And chapter 9 is an absolute must-read for you. Uh, Contains Ezra's prayer of confession and repentance. It's a stunning prayer that we won't have time to look at this morning, but really I would commend it to you highly. And it leads in chapter 10 to this radical action When Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered round him. They too wept bitterly. They said, now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up, put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. So so what happens is those who had intermarried with the pagans are now separating from those wives and their children. Uh, It is a radical, puzzling action that Ezra is leading the people to take. A couple things are helpful as we think about this. One is to realize that what they are doing is actually a lesser, perhaps more merciful act than was required of them. Um, Back in Deuteronomy 13, the law of God says, If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, 
Let us go and worship other gods. Gods that neither you nor your fathers have known. Gods of the peoples around you. Whether near or far from one in the land of the other. Do not yield to him. Or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death. Because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God. Who brought you out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery. So these mixed marriages actually should have resulted in stoning these wives, these pagan wives who were leading the people astray. And throughout the book of Ezra, the people are continually separating themselves from what is unholy and ungodly that they've gotten tangled up with. Only the faithful worshipers of Yahweh are permitted to build the temple. They separate themselves from some um, syncretistic worshipers who worshiped other gods as well. They don't allow them to participate. Only the true worshipers of Yahweh get to participate. And throughout Ezra, one of the themes that surfaces is the radical importance of holiness. More important than any other human relationship um, is that we would be holy before our God. And while the, the New Testament teaching on divorce would surely prohibit us from following this pattern, um, it does help us see the radical importance of holiness. One, one writer put it this way, Ezra's response to the returnees' unfaithfulness in their marriages modeled the importance of holiness to us. The stunned humiliation, anguished confession, prolonged mourning and fasting attest to how seriously he took God's requirement of holiness from his people. To Ezra, failure to be holy jeopardized everything. His solution to the crisis underscored the key components of holiness touched on throughout the book of Ezra. Separation from uncleanness and separation unto the Lord in obedience to his word. This morning... What do you need to be separate from to be useful in God's hands? And what are you involved in? What practice, what relationship? What are you doing that is rendering you unholy before the Lord? And what steps is God prompting you this morning to take as you see this radical example taken to protect holiness? Um, there was a fairly conservative Midwestern small-town church in rural Indiana. Uh, and they were all pretty surprised one Sunday when a genuine bona fide biker dude showed up in the middle of their congregation. I hope you can picture this in your mind. This little white church building in people with this guy all tatted up coming in on his Harley into worship. He said he stuck out like a sore thumb. He was ponytailed. He was tattooed. He was wearing biker's colors. But the church came alongside him. They showered him with love and acceptance. And he kept coming back. And eventually, this guy trusted Christ in the midst of this unlikely group of Midwestern farmers there in Indiana. Um, there was one question that everybody had. That was, why did he always wear long sleeve shirts? It gets hot up there in the summertime. And finally, he confessed to the pastor that he had a tattoo of a naked woman on one forearm and he didn't want the other people in the church to see it. 
Well, a few weeks later, the biker walked up to the pastor and said, Want to see my new tattoo? And he rolls up his tattoo, and this is what he says. He says, You know that naked woman tattoo I told you about a while ago? I had the tattoo artist put clothes on her. He's real proud of it. Um, So, what needs to change for you? What needs to be covered up? What needs to be removed? Um, this, is, this is the really important part of the restoration of God's people. The, the temple is critical to their worship patterns in these days. But oh, the restoration of the people's hearts as set aside unto the Lord, no compromise, is absolutely critical. Well, about a decade or so after this great upheaval in the end of the book of Ezra, um, the book of Nehemiah picks up. And Nehemiah is a kind of bookend to Ezra. A lot of times in history, they've been treated as just one book. They're not even separated. Their stories tie together so tightly. Um, Nehemiah chapter 1 Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. This is Nehemiah talking here. And also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem that surrounded and protected and fortified the city is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah, when he heard these things, he sat down and he wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord of heaven. So what we have going on here now is Nehemiah leading a third return. Now look at where this is. Way down there, this is the last recorded historical act of the Old Testament. This closes it out. Now again, there's a lot of other stuff we're going to cover about the prophets, and they all fit in this place somewhere. But Nehemiah is closing out the Old Testament with a return of God's people to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the city. And he emerges as this kind of man. The king says to me, what is it you want? And I pray to the God of heaven. Nehemiah's life is profoundly marked by prayer. He is a man who prays. He's, a, he's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's got a secular job. He's cupbearer to the king. But like Ezra, he's a man marked by prayer. King shaping prayer. Um, Chapter 2. Nehemiah says, you see the trouble we're in. He's gone back to Jerusalem now. He says, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We'll no longer be in disgrace. And I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let's start rebuilding. And they began this good work. Um, But of course, they encountered that opposition. Again, this is happening kind of piecemeal with Ezra's book. They're going pretty much hand in hand, one right after the other. And they encounter tremendous opposition. They're all trying to frighten them, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But Nehemiah prayed, now strengthen my hands. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, the enemies who are persecuting them. 
oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. Nehemiah's response, his consistent response is prayer. When he's in trouble, when he needs something great, he is a man of prayer. As the book of Nehemiah unfolds, it's structured like the book of Ezra. The first part's about rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the city. Second part is about reforming the people. And just like in the book of Ezra, Ezra is the one who plays a lead role in the book of Nehemiah in reforming the people. Um, you see it in chapter 8. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud, watch this closely, from daybreak until noon. Some of you have been concerned that my sermons have been longer lately as we've been going through all this text. It, it could be worse, okay? It could be a lot worse. From daybreak until noon, these people are standing before God as his word is read to them. And as the priests explain it to them, they listen attentively to the book of the law. In chapter 9, you get the same sense. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law their God for a quarter of the day just reading it and having it taught to them. And then they spend another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Because they saw in the word of God where their lives were apart and it tore them up. And so they spent a quarter of the day reading the Word and another quarter of the day in repentance and worship. Here's just a taste of it from chapter 9. This is the great prayer of Ezra. The, the nines in these two books, or not of Ezra, but of, of uh, Nehemiah. The nines in these two books, Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 9, record phenomenal prayers. The leaders pray in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that's come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until now. And all that's happened to us, you've been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong, our kings and leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or to the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we're slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins... Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So they confess their sin and renew their covenant to be faithful followers of God. But throughout all these books, when God's people are restored, it's... It's absolutely essential that they confess and repent. And there's nothing different about our pattern today in terms of when we become wayward, how we get restored to walk in God's ways in a way that honor Him. Confession and repentance are absolutely essential. But I'm afraid those things have fallen into neglect for us. It'd be an interesting show of hands. 
When was the last time that you confessed your sins to God? Last 24 hours? Last week? Last month? You know, um, the Roman Catholic churches are probably no more renowned for confession than we are. Have a special booth for it and everything. Um, but um, according to a 2005 survey by Georgetown University, um, 42% of practicing Catholics, practicing Catholics, said they never go to confession. Only 2% go regularly. I'm not advocating confessional booths, but I think it may be, very well be indicative of our own patterns. A great way to end your day is with confession of sin. Nothing like putting down, your head down on the pillow and reviewing your day and saying, God, I'm so sorry for my sins. Thank you for your mercy that comes to me through the cross. And just, you know, sometimes it takes you a little longer than you wish. What a great way to end the day. And what a great way to end Nehemiah's book. He ends it with prayer. Remember me with favor, oh my God. Oh my God. Um, about midway through the book of Ezra, actually between chapters 6 and 7, a must, an absolutely must read story unfolds. It's recorded for us in the book of Esther. Again, it's right in the middle of all this. Happens right between chapters 6 and 7, as near as we can tell, in the book of Ezra. This amazing story unfolds in the book of Esther, where Vashti, who is the queen of Persia, disobeys her husband, publicly dishonors him. Um, Xerxes is her husband, the king, and she is dethroned. And one of the king's aides comes up with a brilliant idea. Ezra chapter 2, the king's personal attendants have a proposal. He's lost his queen. He had to depose her because of her disobedience and dishonoring him. Uh, let a search be made for, a beautiful, for beautiful young virgins for the king. He's liking this plan already. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. And let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the advice appealed to the king, as you can imagine, and he followed it. Now, what follows has been described um, by one commentator as a sex contest. These women are beautified and pampered and brought in at night to the king and taken out in the morning. You can only imagine how he's choosing his queen. But by the providence of God, in an extraordinary way, in verse 8 of chapter 2, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor, the favor of Haggai, immediately provided her with beauty treatments and special food, and he assigned her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. And Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. She was a Jew. She was one of God's chosen people who had remained in Persia rather than returned to the promised land. So, while Esther is the closest thing we have to a heroine in this story, she's got all kinds of problems. Okay. Why didn't she go back to the promised land? Why did she stay in captivity? 
Why would she deny her faith and hide it? Why would she so freely and happily partake of the pagan food, whereas you've just had the example of a guy like Daniel who refuses to eat it? Um, And why would she willingly, apparently, sleep with a pagan king? Well, again, providentially, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he became a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. And a Jew is now queen of Persia. Not the godliest young woman in the land, no doubt. But providentially, God has placed her there. Now, in a marvelous story that involves plots to murder the king and what we would call ethnic cleansing of all of God's people to wipe out all the Jews in Persia, um, Esther's cousin who had raised her, his name is Mordecai, urges her to act as a queen and save her people from this ethnic cleansing that's about to happen. Um, Down in chapter 4, they have this conversation. Mordecai who raised Esther and Esther now the new queen. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He's saying you will perish with your people. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for just such a time as this. And God's providential sovereignty seems to be leaking through in Mordecai's mind here. Shaping his thoughts. And shaping Esther's response as well. Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Fasting's always accompanied by prayer. So again, she seems to be responding now in faith. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Esther does this thing. She boldly approaches the king. She risks her life for her people. And again, with all kind of dramatic twists and turns in the storyline where the powerful become powerless and the powerless are exalted. Um, She approaches the king and she pleads with him over in chapter 8 with these words. King took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from the evil Haman who was trying to wipe out the Jews, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. And Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. And she begged him to put an end to the evil plot of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, de- devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And the king relents. Um, 
I'm warning you, I'm giving the end away here. The king relents. And he goes so far not only to spare the Jews, but he gives them permission to wipe out their enemies. The king's edict, edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now this week, uh, you should read Esther. It's a great book of the Bible to read with your children. Um, But it raises some questions. Uh, Two of them are these. One, are Esther and Mordecai role models or are they in fact the opposite? Um, They seem an untangible mix of faith and unbelief. Second big problem is, why is God never mentioned once in the entire ten chapters of the book of Esther? Read it. God never is mentioned. I think perhaps helpful in thinking about this as you read it this week is just this. God's people that are being written to and written about here are the ones in captivity. They are far from God. They have compromised their faith in all probability. They have failed to return to the promised land. And so the absence of the name of God on their lips may well reflect how far they have fallen from God. They don't even speak of God, even in their troubles. But almost covertly, God is at work. You can see his fingerprints and his shadow everywhere throughout this story. Even when his people are wayward, God's at work. Keeping his promises, fulfilling his plan, bringing grace to an undeserving people. The book of Esther, I think, is about God's providential grace to be faithful to his promise to his people. It's not really about Esther and Mordecai. That's why we don't really know what's going on in their hearts. And even though God is not mentioned, it's about God. It's about his secret covert, but unstoppable, like we sang earlier, unstoppable, unstoppable, unshakable working in the lives of his people. Even when God is not mentioned, he's at work, keeping his promises, fulfilling his plan. God is at work in your life when you cannot see him and you cannot hear him. If you are his, he will not abandon you. He has not failed you. Even when you have turned from him, even when you've rejected him, even when you've forgotten him, if you are his, he's still at work. He's still being faithful. He's at work arranging lives, ordering events, directing kings, bringing grace to his wayward people so that his promises will be fulfilled to them, his good promises, and his plan will be carried out. If you are not walking in fellowship with God this morning, then you can count that this week, maybe before this day is out, maybe before this service is out, you're going to receive an invitation from God, a providential invitation from God to trust Him and to walk with Him. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. We see Esther sees it and she's used to save a nation. So right now, We're sitting at the end of the Old Testament, historically. A lot more is written in the prophets and Psalms and Proverbs, and we'll go through all that. But historically, there's a faithful remnant 
that's now sitting in the promised land. Just a shadow of what God's promised. One writer puts it this way. He says, so we come to the end of history, end of the history of the Old Testament. And things still don't look the way the prophets said they would. The house of the Lord has been rebuilt, but the temple mountain hasn't risen to become chief of the mountains. Israel's back in the land, but the land doesn't quite look like the Garden of Eden yet. Yahweh has renewed his covenant with his people, but the law doesn't seem to be written on their hearts. Nations have confessed the God of Israel, but the knowledge of the Lord does not cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Surely, he says, at the end of the Old Testament, something better must be coming. And that something is a someone, and it's Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And God is preparing the stage for his coming in Bethlehem, some 400 years in the future. This morning, uh, you've got to see God at work in someone else's life. And you've got to see other people obey God's word radically and pray wildly so that king's hearts are moved and shaped perhaps this morning God's speaking to you about your own trust in his providence your own knowledge and obedience to his word your own lack in prayer and if those are things God's pressing on you this morning we want to welcome you to to come as we close in our time of response and kneel here before God with one of our leaders or a friend or alone and just commit to God as your first step of obedience that you'll follow him Wherever he leads, you'll trust his providence even when you can't see him working. Let's stand for closing prayer and this song of worship.